When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to How To Money, a financial education podcast for young Australians aimed at opening up the conversation around money. I'm your host, Kate, and today I've invited Dr. Daniel Crosby onto the show. Daniel is a psychologist and behavioural finance expert from the States who recently published a fantastic book called The Behavioural Investor. The Behavioural Investor is an in-depth look at how sociology, psychology and neurology all impact investment decision-making. So in today's episode, I chat to Daniel about the emotions impacting our financial decisions and understanding and mitigating the behavioural biases in our investing journeys. This episode was kindly supported by eTax Accountants, Australia's favourite online tax agent. eTax is a company that I've personally used for the last few years to complete my yearly tax returns online with live assistance from qualified accountants. They've got a live tax refund calculator and deduction tips based on your job to help boost your tax return. So sort out your taxes today by heading to etax.com.au. Just a quick reminder that everything we cover in this podcast is financial education only, and we're not giving you any advice. If you do want advice, please seek the help of a qualified and competent professional and also do some research. Remember, it's your money, so take control. Now let's get started. Hi, Daniel. Thanks so much for joining us on the How To Money podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now you're our first international guest all the way from the United States. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Yes. Honored to be the first international guest coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, wow. And I, I, it's amazing that we can record episodes like this. And I mean, I've never stepped foot in America, but uh, it's pretty crazy. And I've not been to, I've not been to your beautiful home country, even though my family just got back from there. We had a wedding, uh, a family wedding there, but I had to stay and work. So haven't made it yet myself. How disappointing. Uh, it was not it was not fun. <laughs> you have to pencil a trip in. Yeah, for sure. Uh, the weather's not too great at the moment. You've got to come in the summer. Deal. <laughs> Okay. Now, before we get started, it'd be great if you could tell my audience a little bit about you and your background in psychology and behavioral finance. Yeah. So I sort of came to the world of money via a roundabout route. I am a clinical psychologist by education. So like my background is I have a PhD in basically being a shrink. Um, (laughs) I'm the son son of a financial advisor, however. And so when I was getting out of my doctoral program, I was uh, already tired of doing therapy and wanted to look (laughs) for sort of 
non-medical applications of psychology. And so my dad said, hey, why don't you check out this world of behavioral economics? So long story short, I look into it and, uh, you know, absolutely fall in love. It's the intersection of, you know, mind and markets and mind and money. And it's just been a great fit for me ever since. So I was uh, lucky to find what I find what I love, not not at university, but just immediately after. Mm, and that's that's the way things happen. Sometimes you just sort of mixture of different things you do over time, and suddenly you found something you're really interested in. Exactly right. You just have to get out there and uh, mix it up, and you'll run into the thing that you love, right? Mm. And I'd love to hear a bit more because I know you you've done a lot of research in this area about recognizing your emotions when it comes to your personal finances and the behaviors impacting your relationship with money. Yeah. So a lot of my research has been around taking the world of behavioral biases. So like, if you're not familiar with that term, they've now given out three Nobel prizes, um, basically to, to researchers, psychologists, and economists who have identified ways that we're less than rational, right? The ways that we do silly things with our money. And we've now identified over 200 biases, basically 200 ways that you can make poor decisions with your money. But um, that's, you know, that's all well and good. But, but in order to know what to do about this, I felt like we had to get it down to a workable universe. And so I looked at these 200 and in my books, I've, I've broken it down to four basic things we do. Uh, you know, the first is ego, which we're sort of overconfident. We're sort of boastful and overconfident and think bad things won't happen to us. Second one is we're emotional. Uh, the third one is we're too conservative at times with our money. And then finally, uh, we fall prey to attention, which is basically, uh, you know, confusing what we see on the news with reality. So these are sort of the four, the four big ones in my research. Yeah. And so these are definitely things we see in our everyday lives and impacting the way that we relate with money. And I think the the biggest part is actually recognizing these. Um, and that probably comes from knowing what they are. Well, it's, it's interesting. It's, uh, it's a little bit discouraging because I heard one of these Nobel prize winners on, uh, you know, on uh, interviewed on a podcast recently, and they said, you know, Oh, well, you must be so rational now, you know, you must make really great choices and he goes, oh no, not no, no, not at all, you know. And I, I have to say, <laughs> I have to say the same thing about myself. You know, I've written three books about this stuff now, and I'm not sure I'm any better off. the The tricky thing about bias, and even just the way that our mind works, is that oftentimes we have a bias blind spot. So we want to think of ourselves as competent and and sound decision makers. And so we have a blind spot for these biases. So a lot of times the best way uh, to discover them uh, is the hard way, like either by making a mistake or by having a friend or an advisor point them out to us. And so we have to, we have to remain humble enough to, have, to be receptive to that feedback though, because other people can know us better than we know ourselves, the research suggests. Mm, and that often comes down to having someone in your team to support you on your financial journey as well if so you're not doing it alone well it's it's interesting i've done some research that shows that people who work with financial coaches and financial advisors do significantly better than those who don't but it's not because of the 
the stock picking, right? It's not because asset allocation or stock picking or anything. Uh, it's because of saving them from a few catastrophic mistakes, you know, saving them from really big, bad decisions. And so the best use of a financial advisor is frankly to just save you from yourself. But most people hire a financial advisor to, you know, put them in a hot stock. And that's, uh, you know, the research shows they can't really do that, but they can keep you from screwing yourself up sort of. Yeah. Because you don't really, I'd, I've never heard of anyone say, I want to go to a financial advisor to help me with my relationship with money and my behavior towards money. It's usually, like you said, a hot stock or for a specific reason. Well, it's it's so interesting. There's research that shows that 83% of advisors say that the biggest value that they add for their clients is, you know, behavioral coaching, keeping them from making these decisional errors. And when you ask the clients, only 6% say that's important to them. So it's, it's wild because the advisors uh, understand that that helps. The research backs up that that helps, but we haven't gotten that message down to everyday consumers yet. Uh, and it's frankly because, you know, financial institutions have led with a different story. They've led with marketed themselves as being able to, you know, predict the markets and choose great stocks. So it's not the consumer's fault that they believe what they do. They've been marketed to that way. Uh, but I think it's time to, you know, start to tell a different story. Yeah, absolutely. And it would probably take quite a bit of time to change the narrative around financial coaches and advisors, though. Oh, yeah. It's very counterintuitive. Yeah. Now, speaking of decisions, often um, when you're making decisions about personal finances, especially when you're getting started for the first time, there is so much information out there and so many potential options you could choose for anything from which investment to buy to which bank account to use. And sometimes it can just become so overwhelming, you end up doing absolutely nothing. So, do you have some tips for overcoming sort of decision-making paralysis? Yeah, I think the first thing to do is to get started. So, you know, the first thing I would do is I would read like three books, you know, read three books on sort of the basics of finance. The strange thing about investing and personal finance is we're all just sort of rehashing the same stuff again and again. I hate to say it as a guy who writes books, but it's like, you know, there's really nothing new. It's just understanding a few basics and getting started. So I would read, you know, take a long weekend, lock all the doors, <laughs> read, read two or three books, and then take that first step because it really is quite easy once you get started. And you can learn 98% of what you need to know by just reading two or three books. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then just taking the first step because those books often tell you um, a few steps to take. So that's probably a good place to start. Yeah, I would, you know, just for ease, I would do something like find a, a low cost index fund, put, you know, put half of it in, uh, you know, put half of it in US stocks, a quarter of it, <clears throat> a quarter of it in Asian stocks and put, you know, Asia, Australia stocks, and then put uh, a quarter of it in, uh, in European stocks, you'll be off to the races. That's, you'll beat 90% of, of fund managers with that allocation right there. And it just basically mirrors um, what it looks like in the world. You know, the US is about half of the world stock market. So that should be about half of your portfolio uh, and, and so on. So yeah, doing that, finding cheap funds that just own everything, you'll beat, uh, you'll beat most professional fund managers who spend much more time on this. Mm, and that's sort of 
it's amazing how easy it is to get started if you do choose to take that first step nowadays with exchange traded funds um, and the market suddenly you've got the world open to you and in Australia you can pretty much buy an exchange traded fund that tracks every single index in the world yeah absolutely and you can do it um, you know for a, a fraction of a percent it's so cheap there's never been a better time to be an investor and you know the way that I like to think about it is is it's just a different way to sort of see the world you know when I'm investing overseas um, you know and overseas looks looks different for me than it does for you but when I'm investing overseas I'm like oh well hey I'm gonna invest a little here let's learn about the economies of this region let's learn a little bit about how they go to go to market and it's just a it's a fun way to become a world citizen and become engaged in the news and the goings on of the world uh, because suddenly you have a you know you have a dog in that race now mm, yeah and I've from some of the stuff I've read about behavioral finance, Setting up a rules-based system like automating uh, money going into your investment account and automating your savings goals is beneficial. What are your thoughts on that? So one of the Nobel Prizes that I talked about that was awarded was basically awarded for uh, a finding that found that automating the withdrawal and or so the deposit of retirement funds and the escalation of retirement funds over time um, was dramatically impactful. It resulted in billions and billions of extra savings. Because if you think about human beings, let's let's be honest, we're kind of lazy. Um, we're kind of lazy, right? We're kind of lazy. We're kind of prone to, to hold the status quo. But if the status quo is investing, we can be lazy in a good way. So what Richard Thaler found, and this is done uh, with great success in Australia, is to just take a little chunk out of the paycheck every month and to have that automatically grow as you get raises. Because what they find is you're basically setting it on autopilot. You basically put that good behavior on autopilot and now you don't have to re-decide every two weeks. You know, should I save? Should I save? Should I save? You make one good decision and then you ride on that good decision lazily for the rest of your life. I mean, it's like, it's like the equivalent of the diet and exercise equivalent of deciding one time on New Year's Day to only eat healthy food for the rest of the year and to have healthy food delivered to your house every day at six o'clock. Um, it's the equivalent of that. You make one good decision and you benefit it from it for the rest of your life. So, you know, one thing it plays on is this status quo tendency, this laziness and making that flipping that on its head and making it work for you. The second thing is that we just make better decisions. You know, in, in one of my books, I looked at a study of all the studies on rules-based decision-making versus human discretion. And we found that 96% of the time, the rules are either superior to or equal to human decision-making. So things like markets where there's emotions involved and there's uncertainty and there's risk and there's all sorts of things, you're usually better off sticking to your rules than trying to make a decision in a moment of panic. So for, for a host of psychological reasons, automating your investments is one of the best decisions you could ever make. So that's, I think what you're referring to was our superannuation system in Australia, which is pretty much lazy, lazy investing where you just set it up and you can forget it as long as you're in the right investment option and you don't have 500 super accounts floating around. That's exactly right. Yeah, and that's probably, I mean, the I think superannuation the industry in Australia is nearly a trillion dollars. It's it's massive how 
I think it's been it's been around for a few decades now, but how much it's grown just from people having that nine point five percent of their paycheck getting put aside, which eventually they no one really notices any more because it just gets taken anyway, like taxes. Well, the the Australian superannuation uh, model is the <clears throat> is the envy of the rest of the world. So here in America, we're set to run out of money in like fifteen years. So we're all gonna um, we're all gonna come join you. So keep <laughs> keep, uh, keep doing what you're doing because you're doing it right. Yeah, often when I'm reading personal finance books, uh, a lot of them are based out of the United States and they refer to 401ks. So I'm often telling people, well, our super system's kind of similar to that. It's a little bit different, but that's pretty much what they're referencing. Mm-hmm. If we're looking a little bit more at investing, um, what are some of the behavioral biases that can impact, impact our investments and our investment returns? So I'll I'll dive a little deeper on the four that I mentioned earlier. So, you know, the first of these is ego. So what does that look like? This sort of overconfidence, what does it look like in an investment scenario or a personal finance scenario? You know, it might look like having an overly concentrated position. So um, people tend to invest most heavily in countries that they know and in industries that they know. So... Um, I don't know what it looks like in Australia. I can tell you, I'm sure it's too high. It's too high in the US. It's too high everywhere. I lived in I lived in Canada for a time and uh, Canada makes up about 4% of the world economy, but the average Canadian had about a 40% allocation to Canadian stocks. And so that's sort of overconfident, right? That's this familiarity with with what we know and thinking that we can know better than the market. And so, yeah, uh, in terms of practically what it looks like there might be a concentrated stock position. Uh, you know, a good, uh, a good rule of thumb is that no single stock should comprise more than about four or 5% of your portfolio. Now, an ETF that like trades the whole, you know, Australian market could be bigger than that, but no single stock should account for about more than about four or 5%. And oftentimes you see people with much larger positions than that. You also see emotions, you know, people trading on their emotions. Um, many other places in life, emotions can be a very good guide. You know, this is sort of nature's risk management system, uh, but in the market, it tends to be a disaster and emotional decisions tend to be the worst decisions. Um, we see conservatism, which is people being so scared of markets that they never uh, get in. And what's, what's tricky and counterintuitive is that at least in the U.S., inflation has been about 3% a year over long periods of time. And so if you're not investing, um, you're actually losing 3% of your purchasing power every year. So people try and play it too safe uh, by sitting in cash, not realizing that every, every year they're setting 3% of their net worth on fire. And, and then finally, there's that attention um, bias which is confusing things that are um, lurid or sensational with things that are likely. So, you know, I give the example of shark attacks, right? Like you, you see shark attacks in the news and there's just like a handful of people every year who die of shark attacks and yet they're everywhere. You know, it's everywhere in the news every summer you're going to see, you know, someone getting bit by a shark. And so people think that they're very likely when in fact they're very unlikely. You know, you're much more likely to to die of the hamburger you had for dinner than, you know, than from a shark attack. And people c- sort of confuse those risks. 
And so good, good investors, behaviorally informed investors align their, their fear of something with how likely it is to happen. Uh, and in markets, you know, once you understand the risks, you're, you're in a much better position to, to be a good investor. Mm, absolutely. And I, I think that's the biggest part of confusing the risks and the same thing like with car crashes are so much more likely than plane crashes, but you worry about one much more than the other. So after 9-11 here in the US, you know, everyone was terrified of flying on airplanes. After 9-11, it was such a just a horrible thing. And so 3,000 people died in the Twin Towers but another 1,600 people died in cars over the next three months of that year. Uh, an extra 1,600 people died because so many more people were driving versus flying. You know, again, they latched on to that singular event, that rare singular terrorist event, and they became so scared of that um, horrifying but unlikely scenario that they did something far more dangerous, which was driving. Right, and so that's a it's a perfect example of confusing real risk uh, with perceived risk. Mm. And I I was talking to one of my friends the other day, and he was saying um, you often think about the downside. So the downside that you could lose money when you're investing, but you don't really think about the upside as much and the potential that. You, you could go down 100%, but you could go up a lot more than that over time. Yeah, so it's fascinating. We find that people tend to fixate on either one or the other. And so you and your friend may be more sort of downside, um, you know, downside oriented. I certainly am. Um, but some people, all they can see is the potential. And so good investors are actually learned to, to sit somewhere in the middle and to say, yes, look, I'm going to have a healthy respect for the downside. And because of that, I'm going to diversify. I'm going to have, you know, a good advisor, like whatever I I need to do to, to take this financial journey. But you have to consider the upside too, because, you know, the ability of markets to create wealth over long periods of time, even in the face of, you know, uh, terror attacks and world wars and plagues and every other thing is is truly staggering. Like there, there has always been and there always will be reason to worry, um, but the ability of of humankind to persevere and push through in spite of that and to to move the world forward has been pretty incredible. So I think optimists really win the day eventually, but good investors have a, a healthy sense of both. Mm, absolutely. And just to finish things off, I'd love to hear your number one tip for young people who are managing their finances today. So my number one tip for young people would be to to invest in yourself. You know, so many of the articles we see uh, on on investing sort of assume that you have discretionary money to invest. The best investment you can ever make is in yourself and your career. Uh, because you can't bleed a stone. And, you know, all these things, you see all these articles about people retiring early and the financial independence movement and these sorts of things. I'll tell you the one thing they have in common is that they all made a lot of money. And so, you know, if you can up your skills, uh, you can up your uh, your ability to invest in things first. So I would, I would start investing immediately, but I would absolutely invest in myself. That's the that's the best dividend that you'll ever get. That'll do more to compound your wealth than anything else ever will. Mm, and at the very beginning, it's very hard to increase your savings rate. So sometimes the best option is to increase your income by upskilling and investing in yourself. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's always going to be a minimum nut that you have to crack to live just to eat and have a roof over your head, but there's no limit to the upside. So invest in that, uh, you know, potentially unlimited upside is, is good advice for young people, I think. Mm, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining on the podcast today, Daniel. And if people want to find a bit more about you and your research, where should they go? Um, they can check out my books on Amazon, The Behavioral Investor and The Laws of Wealth, and they can follow me on Twitter at Daniel Crosby. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Daniel. My pleasure. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to today's How to Money podcast episode with Dr. Daniel Crosby. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and send any questions our way via www.howtomoney.online. You can also catch us on Twitter and Instagram at howtomoneyaus, and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to the How To Money podcast.